Well, hey there, Faith family, and welcome to today's sermon panel discussion. So we were in 1 Samuel 15, um, and it, it was indeed, as, as the uh, title of the sermon uh, stated, it was, it was an uncomfortable story. It's a, that, was, that was just a hard, it was a hard text. Uh, but uh, I want to dive right in uh, and ask you this, Dan, how are you helped by today's exposition? Uh, there was so much uh, good in this sermon. I think the, the thing that just encouraged me the most is just, the, the, the honesty of dealing with this is a difficult passage, not trying to sugarcoat it, mm-hmm. um, but just dealing with it head on. And I think, that, I think that's what, uh, say, if we had any skeptics uh, in, in the attendance, I think that's what they would have appreciated the most. Mm-hmm. Rather than trying to sugarcoat it, just like deal with the passage uh, and all of its uh, brutal reality and then work through uh, how we should really think about that. So I just, mm-hmm. I just th- and I think that's a wonderful model for how the, all scripture is valuable. We know that from 1 Timothy. And I like how he also just drew attention to the fact that we believe in ex, expository preaching here. And so yes. this is what's going to happen. It's, it forces you to deal with uh, difficult passages. But that, in the end, that's good for us to, to get that, that meat on our bones, the meat of the word, um, that we are dealing with difficult passages. And like he ultimately said, we're going to come away stronger spiritually if we do that, if we have that mm-hmm. steady diet. But that, but he also acknowledged that that can have taken an emotional toll to have your preconceived notions about God torn down and then built up in a more scriptural foundation. Um, it, it is, yes. it's like one of those many things in life. It might not feel good, but it's for our good ultimately. So yes. I just appreciated his his honesty um, and forthrightness uh, in dealing with difficult passages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, and it was a, it was a painful text you you read in it. It, it is very, it becomes very personal. It's like, no, that's that person's wife. That's that person's child. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it makes me think of, uh, this is how I was, I was helped by, by just thinking of all the other ways that, uh, man, God's, God's judgment on sin is so real. It, it, it is painfully real. I think mm-hmm. about the flood. I mean, there, there were, it wasn't just like Noah and all the, the giraffes are smiling, the elephants are happy, you know, and all the kids' books. It, it, it was horrific. Mm-hmm. It was horrific. And so um, I, I was just helped by us, re- like, let's actually deal with uh, not just the, maybe the difficulties of the text, but, but who, who is this God that we do worship? Mm. And, and am, I, am, am I more comfortable with you know, kind of like, oh, well, I just want to pass over these things, and or really, do I want to face them? Because yeah. um, really, it comes back to the sin in my own life of like, man, God did not gloss over anything. God does not gloss over my my own life, which is what, man, that's why I have to just run to the cross. So, um, well, so Kyle started. Uh, telling the church that this was an uncomfortable passage. And he gave, just gave some examples about how people often handle these kind of passages. So ha- have you encountered other passages in the Bible that were uncomfortable? And then, and then how did you deal with those? Yeah, I mean, uh, anyone who, by God's grace, I was urged from, from a young child to read the Bible for myself. I think I was probably early teen, maybe teenager, by the, when, I, when I finally got around to actually reading the Bible through cover to cover. And yeah, I mean, you can't go through, especially the Old Testament, without going through passages like this. I mean, it reminds me of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God yes. destroyed two whole cities uh, supernaturally. Or uh, the Canaanite. I was also thinking about the initial Canaanite invasion, where God commanded uh, uh, the, the children of Israel to do something very similar then. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, kind of like addressing those type of things 
first big picture, just like I found whenever dealing with a difficult passage, whether it's um, like this one, emotionally jarring, or whether it's just difficult to unpack and, um, and difficult to interpret, uh, I always encourage people to hold on to what you know is true. Whenever you're dealing into, d diving into whatever is uncertain, keep that anchor on, on what you know is, is true and right and good. Um, as you wade into that. So, uh, for instance, like if those passages in the New Testament that seem to suggest that we're saved or kept by our good works. No, 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 you hold on to what Paul couldn't be more clear about, that we are saved by faith, and then d delve in there. And then you realize, oh, he's just talking about that true faith will lead to works and that we shouldn't be self-deceived and that we should not be complacent, that, that a true believer should not be complacent. Yes. Similar things in the Old Testament, as, you, as you're tempted to just question the goodness and justice of God when you deal with some of these harsh things in the Old Testament. So mm -hmm. always hold on to what we know is true, the nature of God and the gospel, the nature of Christ, when you deal with difficult passages. And then, but you know, those difficult passages will come um, and uh, there's, there's tools for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the holding on to what we know uh, is true is, is what you have to do. And then just kind of specifically thinking about the, these passages that seem to condone genocide. Well, a good thing to, to realize, again, you hold on to, we know that God has revealed himself as perfectly just and perfectly good. Before you start questioning that, uh, look at those other passages. Is there a rationale behind what God is doing in these specific passages? So the, the Canaanite conquest. Uh, there's passages where... Abraham is a sojourner long before there is a nation made of him. And even back then, the Canaanites are very wicked people doing immoral things, child sacrifice, rapes, all kinds of abuses. And God saw that their, their wickedness then. But we have this little side note in Genesis at one point, but, but the, the, the wickedness of the Canaanites was not fully come to fruition. So God mm -hmm. gave them 400 years to repent and change yes. their ways. But note that by the time that Joshua and the children of Israel come to the, Canaan, the land of Canaan, they have not repented. They are still doing child sacrifice and abusing each other and the weakest among them. And so God in his d divine wrath chose to use the children of Israel mm -hmm. as his instrument. He could also use supernatural means. So in Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood mm -hmm. that you mentioned, God uses supernatural water or fire and brimstone from heaven to punish wicked people, an entire civilization or city at that time. Here, uh, Saul's army and in the Canaanite conquest, God just chose to use the children of Israel as that instrument of judgment. Mm -hmm. So he can use uh, supernatural means, he can use uh, human means. But like I like the, the theologians that Kyle mentioned here. There is no justification for any kind of future kind of ethnic cleansing or genocide. Right. You can't then go back and say, well, it happened in the Old Testament. Those were specific times that where God commanded certain people to, to execute his just uh, ju uh, judgment in that way. And so it's really easy to, to kind of um, get that confused uh, and everything. But um, God here was using Saul to judge the Amalekites. And I like how Kyle brought in, hey, when the children of Israel were going through the Sinai Peninsula, the Amalekites attacked them from behind, which means that they were, they were attacking the most vulnerable, sneak attack, no provocation. And so God in his justice chose to wait until Saul uh, became king to execute that judgment. And then, the, which opened up the opportunity to discuss partial obedience and, and Saul's uh, sinfulness uh, and his failure to obey that, that just command. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you always hold on to what you know is true, the character of God, and specifically how he has revealed his character through the gospel. Yes. Yeah, I, scripture, scripture makes itself plain. Scripture interprets scripture. Mm. And so we don't just read a passage and... Like, okay, well, that, that's that at, at total face value, and I'm going to completely ignore 
the entire rest of, mm -hmm. of the Bible and who God is and who he's yeah. revealed himself to be. So, no, it's helpful. Well, you, you kind of got into this, this uh, third question I was going to ask you about, um, like holy war, divine warfare. Um, how, do we, how do we think about those things? Yeah, I, I, I like how uh, Kyle t talked about his uh, theology professor who makes a distinction between holy war and divine war. I think that could be useful. Um, certainly, w w the Bible talks a lot about spiritual warfare. There's lots of military yes. allusions, both Old and New Testament, especially the New Testament. So there is an aspect of how our, our faith is a struggle and it is a, f a fight and it's ultimately going to be victorious conquest. Mm -hmm. But of course, we know from the New Testament that the, the spiritual warfare that we wage today is against sin and it is for the mm -hmm. truth, using truth. So we lovingly, although sometimes uh, we have to confront people with it, we, we, we minister the truth um, in order to combat lies and ultimately hoping to, to give the truth of the gospel that, so that some will repent uh, and believe in Christ. So we, we certainly cannot think of holy war or spiritual warfare as like jihad, like modern day, right. like, and honestly, and from what I understand, not all Islams believe in a literal jihad, but certainly we know about 9-11 and those radical Islamists who do believe in literal jihad. That mm -hmm. basically means trying to convert other people at the end of a sword. Um, that has certainly never been uh, what the scriptures teach, even though people over the centuries in the name of Christianity have done similar things. So yes. whether it's the Crusades or it's jihad, um, you know, fortunately our Baptist ancestors understood, like, listen, faith should not be compelled. It is not the business of the state to determine people's uh, religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, that's what biblical separation of church and state, not that, that we should be totally secularized and that there's no room for biblical arguments. Um, but yeah, spiritual warfare is not jihad. We lovingly engage in spiritual warfare against our own sin and lovingly give the truth. And also, we don't want to confuse this with just war. We have a lot of people in the congregation here who mm. are in the military or have been in the military, and each of us has to go through our own you know, study of just war and thinking, hey, is it ever permissible to, be, to have your profession be uh, violence and taking other lives? Mm -hmm. And of course, you have to work through that, uh, what the scripture says about just war and that being a soldier is not inherently a sinful profession. Um, and you have to work uh, through all that. But you should also think, even in a just war context, so like uh, in, uh, for the, in the global war on terror, we've been attacking people who uh, seek to oppress others and in institute their religion at the point of a gun or through suicide bombings or those kinds of things. And so we're engaged in just war, but we wouldn't want to consider that holy war because right. obviously we know serving in the U.S. military or other militaries, we're serving alongside non-believers, atheists, um, people of other religions. This isn't like some sort of holy war sanctioned by God. It may be just. It might be it's in the national interest and it might be against people who are committing evil acts. And so this is justified mm -hmm. violence seeking to liberate people and protect them from, from violence. But I still wouldn't put that under the category of like holy war. Right. Uh, the, the, the warfare that God has called Christians uh, to engage in um, is, is about spiritual truth and, and wrestling with our own sin. Uh, again, not saying that Christians can't and, and shouldn't serve in the, in the army under just war theory, but they need to understand those are two different things. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's no, yeah, and the sermon was so clear. Mm -hmm. There's just, there's no command. Uh, there's no even inference in the New Testament that we see as uh, in the new covenant that we have in Christ that, that we would be even, I don't, I don't know, tempted toward mm -hmm. physical violence. I mean, that's just, that's just so beyond 
<laughs> the yeah. you know, think about what Jesus says, like, if your enemy comes at you, turn the mm -hmm. other cheek, yeah. right? Like, it's just, it's just so far beyond. Jesus died. Mm -hmm. He did not put up a fight like yeah. Peter wanted him to. Yeah. So, yeah, no, thank you. That excellent, excellent answer. That's so helpful. So, well, last thing, we encountered God uh, regretting, or that, that word really, it's repenting. God repents. Um, how, how, do we, how do we think about this in a way that just doesn't really shake our faith? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like how Kyle touched on how um, the Bible all throughout uses human-like terms to help us understand God. Yes. It talks about God's right arm. God is a spirit, and, and God the Father is a spirit and has no physical body, and yet we talk about his right arm or sitting on his throne. Those are human asp uh, terminology to help us understand God's right arm. His, his, his strength is infinite. He sits on a throne. He is the sovereign of the entire universe. Mm -hmm. So we constantly see human-type uh, imagery to help us understand who God is. And so and we, while we are like God, God is not like us. And so when we try to go th back the other direction, it can be unclear. And so God has feelings. God has emotions. And so here, God can both have sovereignly orchestrated Saul's disobedience mm -hmm. and Saul's punishment and yet still be grieved over that. Right. And really, the, the New Testament um, uh, analogy that, that came to my mind to help me grapple with this, I mean, not that there's any easy answers. I mean, even with these right. difficult-to-interpret passages, I think we can get to the point where we can, we can show God is just and morally right, but that doesn't mean that in this life short of heaven that we're ever going to fully be able to emotionally uh, uh, wrap our emotional minds, so to speak, to mix metaphors around <laughs> that. Um, the New Testament uh, analogy that I thought of is, is Lazarus. So there's in, mm. was it John 10 or 11? Um, Christ intentionally delays because he knows that Lazarus is about to die. And then he intentionally, he goes there um, knowing that he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead mm -hmm. and do an amazing work for the glory of God there. And yet that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus was appalled and, and felt emotional anguish mm -hmm. at death, even though he sovereignly knew what he was about to do. He was about to conquer death there for, for Lazarus and display his glory. He was still just had an emotional response to just the, the sadness and the, uh, the, the unnaturalness that is death as a result of mankind's sin uh, in the aggregate. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is something very similar. God felt remorse and anguish and grief. Samuel was grieving uh, for, for, for uh, Saul here. I think it's best to understand God was also grieving. This yes. was all part of God's sovereign plan, known from the foundation of the world, and yet he experienced real grief at, at, at Saul's hardness of heart and unregenerate, um, as Kyle, I think, made the good argument that he was unregenerate, but still his, his refusal to repent. Yes. Um, so I think that's the best way to understand that. If you want like more of an unpacking than we could do here in this panel, I highly recommend people a sermon by Kevin DeYoung, a great Presbyterian gospel-centered um, preacher. But he, he gave a great uh, sermon at the 2018 Together for the Gospel Conference. Not that I endorse everything at the, the Senate <laughs> at that conference, but that was an excellent sermon where he just basically did a doctrine of the immutability, the unchangeableness mm -hmm. of God. And he, he addressed issues like this where you might feel like, well, if God's so unchanging, what about these passages where it sounds like he changed his mind? Uh, I, I couldn't do any better as a, just a systematic way of thinking about the, uh, a doctrine about God, his unchangeableness. There is no unchangeableness. His, his plans have been the same from the beginning to the end. Well, how can we make sense of these passages that deal with God uh, in human terms that help us understand um, the, the emotional uh, toll that that takes on him, even though he is sovereignly over that. I think I can I can't 
recommend that more for mm. grappling intellectually with this concept of a God who says he is unchangeable, and yet in these instances in the narrative, it sounds like he's changing. Yes, yeah. No, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, well, and I, as, as was mentioned in the sermon, verse 29, God does not repent. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then verse 35, he does repent. And it's not like the, the author is just... He wrote verse 29, he passes the pen to the next guy. Like, all right, you figure out what's right. No, like these are divinely inspired. Yeah. We, we, there are things that we are not, we are just not going to understand in this lifetime and, and grow, grow to learn in, in, in and throughout eternity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, but thank you. That's very, very helpful answer. You know, when I'm, it's, it's so much easier for me now to, like when I was younger, I wanted to identify in, in, in the story with characters like, like David, mm-hmm. or at least, the, you know, the David that I like portrayed growing up, like the, the hero David, when he was virtuous, when he was good, when he was worshiping God. And man, I want to be like David. Um, now I find it so much easier to identify with, with people like Saul, like you, because you have, you have people mm. telling Saul, I mean, you, he had Samuel and Samuel's like, do this. And then he just doesn't do it. <laughs> like, I, and I think of all the times it's like when I, I have sinned, I've fallen short of the Lord's glory and I need his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. And, he, and he's so quick to, to lavish that on us. Yeah. Uh, last week's sermon, is, uh, we, we had that reminder from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Yeah. And uh, so I, 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 think, I think on that, and that's the, that was the difference. You, you see that in David. David did uh, repent uh, genuinely, there, there was this genuineness uh, to it. And so, um, mm. uh, whereas with Saul, there just, it, it was not, it was yeah. not there. So, yeah, I love how he, there's such a great gospel in, uh, application there for both for professing believers and even people who wouldn't claim to be religious at all. Just saying, listen, Again, like you said, like th- we are Saul here, and we're, we're tempted to, to minimize our sin, excuse our sin, justify our sin, mm-hmm. um, or we're tempted to try to just go through empty rituals to make up for our sin, mm-hmm. uh, or care more about our, how we look than how we actually are on the inside. And that, that is something that, w- that anyone here who is either trusting in empty religion or who is rejecting religion at all needs to, to, to come to grips with. So you can try to be as good a person outside religion as you want, but... God demands repentance. You need yes. to repent of your, insuffi- your feeling of sufficiency. And people who are desperately trying to establish their own righteousness through some sort of works, whether it's Christian works or some other religion's works, that those cannot save you. You've, mm-hmm. you're, you're, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans tells us. So that's why we need Christ. And Christ's death on the cross is the only thing that allows us um, to, to have the experience of that grace of God through repentance. So... Um, and that was just so helpful to cut through so many, so many of the ways, uh, false idols that we're tempted to look to mm-hmm. rather than repentance and faith in Christ. Yes, absolutely. So, well, Faith Family, thank you for joining us. And, uh, you know, if you have questions about repentance, like, man, why, why do I, when I'm, when I'm in certain seasons of life, like, why is it that I could more easily identify with Saul um, instead of David? And is my repentance genuine. These aren't things that we bring up in the text in order to, to scare people, but because we want, we want everyone, uh, uh, every person that's in our flock to have surety. We want them, we want you to have certainty mm-hmm. of the calling and election that God has placed in your life. And so uh, as your pastors, we, we would love to talk with you about those things if you have questions. Um, and uh, thank you so much for joining us for the panel. 
Hope you all have an excellent week. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.